Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Greetings, friends. Jesus is enough. Welcome to our Sunday stream of our message at Redeeming Hope as we continue our series, Hidden Grace, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. Before we get into that, just a few things by way of announcement. August 21st, Family Day. Invite some friends to come on out and join us at our gathering. Afterwards, we're going to have a time of bouncy house and barbecue. It'll be a fun time for the whole family. Also, as we get into the fall, stay tuned for some dates that we're going to be rolling out over the next few weeks for our next men's gathering, our next Hope Youth Gathering. The women gather in group every Tuesday night. You can contact Katie if you're interested in being a part of that. If you'd like to give to Redeeming Hope and partner with us as we're on mission here in Clarksville, Tennessee, you can do so at redeeminghope.org backslash give. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 42 and chapter 45. The title of today's message is Love in the Pain. As we see God's fatherly love working through the pain in Joseph's life and in the lives of Joseph's brothers through Joseph. We're going to begin by looking at the names of one of Joseph's son, sons, Manasseh, and we're told about him in Genesis 41:51, and we're given the definition of his name. Manasseh means, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And what we see in that name is that Joseph sort of dies to the idea of his extended family being redeemed, at least in the way he once might have envisioned. So there's pain in that. Uh, but there's also a sense of accepting this context that God has put him in. And this death-resurrection cycle that we see working in Joseph, we see that that is the way of the kingdom of God. John 12, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And as we know, Joseph is about to bear much fruit even in his extended family. God will redeem this, and we're about to see how he does that. As we reach what you might consider to be the climactic event in this whole narrative, Joseph sees his brothers again. But it takes so long to play out that I couldn't read the whole story straight from Scripture. I'm just going to give us a few texts that'll help us summarize this story. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. I'm reading out of the ESV. But when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Do you remember Joseph's dream? He dreamt that his brothers would bow before him. Verse seven, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. 
And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, a whole series of events plays out that I'm going to summarize in a moment. But let me get to the end of the story now when Joseph reveals himself. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 9. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And yet there are five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace that we see at work in this story. And we thank you for your sovereign grace that is at work in ours. Help us to grow in the confidence, joy, and peace of that, and comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, what we just heard was the beginning and the end of this part of the story of of Joseph seeing his brothers and then revealing himself to them. But I'm going to sort of summarize the whole thing here. Here's the whole story, starting with a summary of where we've come from. Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt through the betrayal of his brothers. He was betrayed into prison by Potiphar's wife, but there he met the king's prisoners. Then he ascended to power, and through his spiritual gifts and his natural gifts and the position that Pharaoh gave to him because he trusted him, Joseph saved the nation, and eventually we'll see here he saved his family. Meanwhile, Jacob and his sons are still in Canaan during this famine, suffering. And we learn right away that this family is still dysfunctional, and the whole family climate is still in the tank. It's still in the same place that it was in the days of Joseph's youth. In Genesis 42, verses 1 and 2, I'll read it again. We learn Jacob's uh, heart for his son, Benjamin, and also his lack of trust for the older brothers. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. But he doesn't send Benjamin because he doesn't trust them. And they go down to Egypt and they stand before Joseph. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him, which would not be unusual. It's been about 20 years by this point. Um, The last time they saw Joseph, remember, he was a teenager. And Joseph remembers the dream that he had that his brothers would bow before him. And he says to them, you're spies. They say, no, we're, we're brothers and the sons of one man. And he throws them in prison, takes them out of prison. And he basically says, look, I'm a fair man. I'll let you go with grain, but I'm just gonna keep one brother back, Simeon, as a hostage, so to speak. But if you bring this supposed little brother back with you, whom he'd never met, I'll know if you're telling the truth. They go home and tell their father, Jacob, 
And he, he says, basically, I will never let you bring Benjamin there. Are you kidding me? My heart is already broken over Joseph. I'm not going to let you take Benjamin. But their food, food runs out. Meanwhile, Simeon's in prison. Their food runs out after a few years, and Jacob relents. He sends the sons down with Benjamin. They get more grain. Everyone is free. But on the way home, they find the king's silver cup in Benjamin's sack. It was obviously planted there. They come back and they fall on their knees and they say to Joseph, we're your slaves. And Joseph says, well, I don't need all of you. I just need one of you. I just need the thief, Benjamin. And the brothers are heartbroken over this possibility that Benjamin will not return home with them, the apple of their father Jacob's eye. And that's when Judah steps forward and makes an offer that is so astounding and so electrifying that Joseph can't take it anymore. And remember, Judah is one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 44, we read that this happens in verse 30. Judah steps forward and he says, now, now therefore, as soon as I come up to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, which is the grave. But your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back with you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? <clears throat> I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And this is such a Christ-like offer for Judah to present himself like this. He says, let me bear the blame, my life for his. And it's more than notable that he is a direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. It's like the spirit of Christ is already preaching through him the gospel, that Jesus would be our substitute. More on that later. <clears throat> Joseph is deeply moved by this and he can't hide his secret anymore. He sends all the Egyptians out and he tells his brother who he is. He says, it's me, Joseph, is my father well? And they're floored. But what does all this mean? Well, first of all, I want you to see the, the incredible perspective on God's sovereignty working through this story that Joseph has. He says, you meant for evil in my life, but God intended it for good. And so he, he sees God. Now he finally sees God was sovereign in this whole story and that his brother's betrayal was just a vehicle to get him to where he is. It's remarkable. And, and it's given him grace for what his brothers did because he sees that God had a plan behind their plan. God had a good plan and God worked through all of it. He, he said, it's not, it wasn't you. You weren't the ones ultimately to write this story. My destiny was never in your hands. It was only in God's hands. And that, that really helps us as we process pain. That helps us as we process betrayal. It helps us as we process, you know, uh, relationships that have gone bad or that where there's bitterness. Think like Joseph. God is sovereign over your story. God is writing a story through all of that. And what they meant for evil, 
God intended for good. And that's deeply comforting. Joseph tells his brothers what the story means. He said, you did this and that to me, but under all these things that were happening, God was doing something. Behind everything else, God was at work. Now, how was God at work? That's what I want to talk about the rest of the time. Just two questions I want to ask today and answer in this message. Number one, what is God doing? And number two, why can he do it? What is God doing and why can he do it? Let's talk about what, is, what he's doing. What is God doing? And it's astonishing when you see what God is doing. Let's remember that Jacob, uh, Joseph, and you know his brothers, all of their father, had ruined their lives through terrible fathering, the favoritism that he showed, the idolatry that he had of his son Joseph that sounds like it's now shifted to Benjamin. Jacob doted on Joseph and built his entire life on him. And as a result, Joseph had become haughty and deceptive as a teenager. His brothers had become mean and jealous and angry. And what we can conclude is that terrible fathering created terrible kids. And what we see in this story is that God stepped in to become the father that they never had. How is Joseph ever going to step into the leadership role and the gifts that he had to serve and save others? How are the brothers ever going to become wise and good so that they can become the basis for God's community in the world? How? God becomes the father behind their father. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. If you want to understand the story of Joseph, you have to understand a certain passage in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. The claim of this chapter is worked out in a case study of Joseph. As, in other words, as we look at Joseph's life, we see this text from Hebrews playing out in Joseph's life. And here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is what's happening in Joseph's life, and this is what's happening through Joseph's life in the lives of his brothers. And throughout the passage in Hebrews 12, we see this word discipline. The problem is that in English, when we hear that word, we almost solely think of the idea of punishment. But the Greek word is actually paideas. The word from which we get the word pediatrics, is a word that actually means the oversight of the entire environment of a child so that the child receives everything he or she needs to grow up strong and mature. That's a lot different than punishment, isn't it? The oversight of the entire environment of the child so that the child receives everything he or she needs to grow up to be strong and mature. And the reason this is translated so strong is because paideas is child nurture with teeth in it. 
That's why it's translated as, as discipline. There's nothing soft about it. Why? Why would God do this? Because you have to bring sharply unpleasant things into a child's life for their growth. Because if there's no consequences, that child is in for a terrible life. Why would God do it? Why would me, why would you as a father or a parent do this? Because you love your children. You will provide that paideas. You will provide that discipline. I remember when my wife and I started disciplining our children. Grace was up first. She's our firstborn. And I remember in the early days hearing Grace just respond with with such sadness to the discipline and, you know, hearing her cry when she was being disciplined by her mother and father. And I remember the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart. You can either listen to her cry now as a two or three-year-old, or you can listen to her cry when she's a 20 or 30-year-old. So we discipline our children because we love them. I mean, the Bible actually has really strong things to say about parents who don't uh, discipline their children. It actually says in, in the Proverbs, the one who spares the rod, speaking of just sparing them of any discipline, hates his son. Who hates their son? Nobody would actually say that. But when you choose not to provide unpleasant things in your child's life, you're loving yourself and your own comfort more than you're loving your children. And God's love is not like that. God, because he loves us, he provides paideas. He provides that context in which we can grow. And there's a very large difference between nurturing discipline and retribution. I'm not talking about retribution. There's a big difference between paideas, that fatherly loving discipline, and justice or retribution. Retribution is just getting even. Someone does something wrong and the person gets what they deserve. In child rearing, parents often fall back and fall into payback mode. And it's not good or healthy. It's almost impossible for parents at times, not to fall into this idea of payback mode. I might have done it myself once or twice. But real paideas is not retribution or justice. It's an exercise of love. You bring into the child's life just enough unpleasantness and pain and not an iota more to change them, to help the child escape from becoming a liar, a crook, or a cocky person. Paideas is nurturing discipline. That's what God is doing. Yes, you, you bring consequences into a child's life. You bring sharp unpleasant, unpleasantness, but just enough to lovingly change, mature, and grow the child into something beautiful. I mean, we can see this in, in sports all the time, right? As a wrestling coach and as a, as, a, as a dad who has five kids who wrestle, six kids who are involved in sports, I'm willing to challenge them. I'm willing to put them through training that hurts, training that's painful, painting that, training that at times has uh, brought them to tears. I'm willing to allow the other coaches to create that context for them because I want them to succeed. And later on, when I see them succeed, when they get their hand raised, when they win the big match, or when they're succeeding at a high level, um, you see the joy of the paideas that you brought into their life as a coach. I remember uh, my son, Jack, when he was uh, three years old, we set up this little, we, we went to a, a local tournament and our older kids were competing, but I knew that some other coaches had uh, kids around Jack's age. So we set up this, we call it a cute bracket. Um, 
just a group of three-year-old kids who would wrestle each other. And it was just, of course, it was ridiculous watching these matches. Just, you know, in, in wrestling, when you take somebody down, you get two. And if you get a reversal, you get two. And it would just be like, the ref was just like, two, as they're rolling on the mat. Two, 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 just awarding points. Because these kids uh, were just, you know, had no sense of how to hold the other kid down. But uh, I remember my son Jack broke down and, uh, when he was three and he had, uh, he had a sort of an emotional meltdown after his first match. And he just sort of stopped wrestling in the middle of the match. And he came off and I said, well, why, why were you so upset? Why did you stop wrestling? And he goes, he wouldn't let me do it. I said, what do you mean? He wouldn't let me do the moves like you do. And I realized that in Jack's training, he'd never actually wrestled before this tournament. He'd never actually wrestled somebody his size or age live. He just wrestled me. And of course, when I'm teaching him moves, I just let him do it. He puts the half Nelson in and I just roll right over. And so I realized, wow, okay. So for, for my son to, to become better, he needs that resistance of people not letting him do the move, of people inflicting a little pain on him in order for him to improve in this sport. And that's, that's what Pideus is. God gave Joseph just enough discipline. Like God protected Job's life, he protected Joseph's. First John 5 actually says, the evil one can't touch us without God's permission. Now you say, providing just enough discipline is a very tender balance. How do I know if I've done enough? That's very tough to do. And my answer to you is, you're wrong. That's not tough to do. It's impossible to do, and there's not a single human being, father or mother, who's ever lived on the face of the earth that can do it, and that's the point. The message of Job's of Joseph's life is that no matter who you are, you need God's paideas, that fatherly loving discipline, because you've never gotten it from anybody else perfectly. No father, mother, no coach. You need it from God. I longed for this when I was a young man. And ultimately, I found his paideas in the gospel. I found it in Christ. I found it in God himself. I unfairly idolized my leaders, unfair to them, because I looked for impossible things into them, uh, in them. And I'm sure that some of you have too. You know what I mean. A father is supposed to be always there, always providing, always giving guidance. A pastor is supposed to be always available, always meeting my need, always building me up. Impossible. A mother is supposed to be always tender, always loving, always working hard. A coach is supposed to be always seeing my potential, always investing me, always choosing me, always believing me. Impossible standards. <clears throat> There's only one perfect father, pastor, coach, and the Old Testament even says that God has a, a mother's heart in a sense that he's, he has that, you know, mothers came from God, right? So the tenderness of a mother is actually found in the heart of God as well. But there's no perfect father, mother, pastor, coach, employee, employer, boss in this life. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are being oppressed politically and persecuted for their faith. And this man has the gall to tell them that they need God's paideas, that God's nurturing discipline is at work in their lives and that they need that, that that's what's coming into their lives. Yeah, he's saying we need it. He's saying every person on the face of the world 
is living in a broken world. Everyone will suffer. Everyone will get stabbed in the back. Everyone will endure pain. But he's also saying every one of you has a broken soul. There's jealousy. There's bitterness. There's unforgiveness. There's indwelling sin within. But he's saying that if you trust God with your life, he becomes a father in this sense that he begins to bring nurturing, that these things are like nurturing discipline in your life to shape you. Tim Keller says, God will bring the external brokenness of the world into a relationship with the internal brokenness of your life in just such a way that it teaches you and wakes you up. It strengthens you. It heals you. In other words, every one of us has all kinds of sharp unpleasantness in our life. Every one of us is living in a world of external brokenness. But here's God's amazing promise. God will bring the external brokenness of the world into a relationship with the internal brokenness of your life in just the right way, at the right times, in the right proportions to make you something great. And the world doesn't have that connection. The world doesn't have a relationship between the internal and the external like a follower of Christ has. But in Joseph's story and in the book of Hebrews, the the curtain is getting pulled back and we're getting to see how this works, that God God harmonizes the, the conflicts that we have, the things we're enduring internally and externally in a way that we can see his fatherly love in it, that, you know, people pray for a hedge of protection around Christians all the time. Well, there is a hedge of protection around every Christian that is a Christian. <clears throat> and God is the gatekeeper of the hedge. He controls the flow of what goes in and what goes out of that hedge, the duration of it, the intensity of it, uh, the nature of it. He's the one who says, stop, that's enough because of his fatherly paideas, his fatherly love. And this all means that whether you had good parents or bad parents in this life, it doesn't matter. You need to have a father above all fathers and see his love at work in the pain. A parent behind all parents. The writer of Hebrews says, you need to pay attention to the father of your spirits. There's a song by an artist named Laura Story. It was pretty popular. It was on Christian radio a lot uh, a few years back. And uh, I I believe that uh, she went through a situation where I I think it was her her husband passed away uh, of a disease and... just very painful a chapter in her life. And she wrote this song, Blessings. Listen to what she says about blessings. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through the raindrops? What if your healing comes through the tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What is she saying? She's saying, God's fatherly love is in the pain. And I'm embracing that. And it set me free. It's ministering to me. So what is God doing? Pideas fatherly, nurturing love. He's disciplining us, bringing just enough unpleasantness and pain into the lives of his followers in order to shape us into who he wants us to be. And my second question today, a much shorter point, 
Why can God do this? How can he show this kind of love, this kind of fatherly love to sinners? We've said that when God comes into your life, he comes into your life as a father and he offers paideia, which is not paying for your sin, but only bringing that unpleasantness in your life to change you. How can he do that and still be holy? Isn't he a God of justice? And what about all the sinful people in the world? What if they ask him in? Will he accept them? Does he wink at sin? Is there no justice? Does he throw justice away? Here's how he can come into your life as a father. Let's look at the story again. Joseph wants to reveal himself, but he's struggling. He wants to reconcile, but suddenly he can't wait anymore. Why? Judah. Judah. Remember what Judah did. Judah offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. I will bear the blame. Let me suffer. Then and only then can Joseph reveal himself. Judah's substitutionary sacrifice was necessary for the reconciliation of this family. But Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice was necessary for you and I to be reconciled to God. God longed to reveal himself to us, but there was no reconciliation without Jesus. Jesus isn't just our moral hero. To be a Christian doesn't mean that Jesus just becomes your moral hero. It means that Jesus becomes your substitute. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And here's the gospel. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, bringing the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Remember what Jesus said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his relationship with the Father so that we could call God Father. Jesus received justice and retribution so we could receive Pideus, God's fatherly love that would rescue us and save us. I hope you're grateful today. I hope your faith is in that sacrifice and not your sacrifice, not what you can do for God, but what God has done for you. Jesus is enough. He said, it is finished. Meaning the work for our justification, the purchasing of our souls, the, the bridge to God, the way of escape from sin, the open door to Father's house. He, he, he did it. He said, it's finished. He paid the price. And you know, it is finished was the same phrase that was used by tax collectors in that day. When a debt was paid in full, they'd say, it is finished. Jesus paid the whole sin debt so we could be called children of God. How do we apply this message? Number one, we need to see Romans 8.28, famous verse differently. For God works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the way we see Romans 8.28 differently is by remembering 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Ah, that tells us what God's doing. He's, he's forming Christ in us. He's making us more like Christ. That's how he's working things for the good. There's a thousand reasons God does everything he does, and you won't see most of them. He'll show us some, but we won't see most of them. But he's forming 
Christ in us through it, and we should trust him. There's internal reasons that are more important to God than external reasons. And those are the very things that motivated God to bring Pideus into Joseph's life and move him from foolishness into wisdom, from callousness into compassion. So we need to see Romans 8.28 differently, that God working things for the good isn't simply him just giving me a comfortable life. It's God working inside of me to make me more like Jesus. Number two, change the way you're interpreting your circumstances. If you're in pain, if you're going through suffering, don't see it as God giving you retribution. He, he gave that to Jesus. He's not going to punish the same sin twice. God gave retribution and justice to Jesus so you wouldn't receive retribution and justice. But look at what's happening in your life, the circumstances, as God's nurturing love. And finally, give nurturing love to others, not retribution and justice. And I'll finish with this. That's what we see, that's what we see Joseph doing in this story. Joseph is not giving retribution to his brothers. If he was, he would have thrown them all in a pit and left them there for decades, let them die there. No, instead, he's loving his brothers the way God loved him with Pideus. He's creating a context that his brothers will see their sin and he'll see Christ-likeness formed in them as Judah steps forward and he'll be able to see his family and his relationships with his family redeemed. It's really a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's fatherly love to Joseph and then God's fatherly love through Joseph to his brothers. Thanks for watching today. I hope you're encouraged by the Father's love. Boy, that's what we, that's what we need to experience as Christians more than anything. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He cries, Abba, Father within us. And I hope that you've experienced the Father's love. I pray you experience it more and more in the days to come. I pray that you've seen a glimpse of it and that's grabbed your heart today and that it gives you grace as you look at your own circumstances in your life, your family, your past, present, and your future. So God bless you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your support. And until next time, remember, Jesus is enough. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.